الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Today, insha'Allah ta'ala, is the last week of the subject of aqidah or principles of aqidah within module one. Uh, from next week, insha'Allah ta'ala, we will be moving on to another topic within the module. So today is the last week of the subject. In terms of your notes that you have been given by, uh, by Kalima, or your, note, your notebooks that you have been given by Kalima, then you have to go backwards because the order was, uh, I changed the order. I previously was going to do this one in the third week and the names and attributes in the fourth week. But I decided to swap them over. So you have to go backwards. Uh, to find the topic that we're going to talk about today. And the topic that we're going to talk about today, insha'Allah ta'ala, relates to something extremely important in terms of what is happening today in, in the Muslim ummah. What we're going to talk about today are principles of aqidah, that relate to takfir and rebellion and similar things. And I want to start by discussing a little bit or to give you a little bit of background about a group known as the Khawarij. This group, the name Khawarij, it comes from the Arabic Kharaja to leave or to go out and the scholars differed over why they were named with this name the Khawarij a group of them said they were named with this name because they went out from obeying the ruler and they stopped obeying the ruler and they left his obedience this is one opinion and the second opinion is that they were called the Khawarij because they left Islam. Because they left the religion of Islam. The stronger opinion is that the Khawarij are Muslim. And this was the opinion of Ali ibn Abi Talib. As he said, they are our brothers who have transgressed against us. And he forbade for them to be chased, like when they ran from the battlefield. So when they would fight against him and they would flee from the battlefield, he forbade for them to be chased and hunted down, as is the ruling of fighting against a Muslim. So Ali ibn Abi Talib used to consider the Khawarij to be among the Muslims, even though they were to be considered among the most disobedient and the most evil of the Muslims. Because the Prophet said many things about them. From the things that he said about them is that 
Iman passes through them like an arrow passes through game. In some narrations, you look at the arrow and you see, is there any blood on it? And is there any Iman left on the arrow? Nothing at all. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ described them as being the dogs of the hellfire. And the Prophet ﷺ said that if I live to see them, I will kill them the killing of Ad. And I would wipe them out like Allah killed the, wiped out the people of Ad. And in another narration, the people of Thamud. Because of these narrations, a group of the scholars held the Khawarij to be disbelievers. Among them famously, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala and others. And they said that these narrations are only said about a disbeliever. And in narrations like they are the dogs of the hellfire, I would kill them, the killing of Ad. Iman passes through them like an arrow passes through game. However, the stronger opinion is that the Khawarij are among the Muslims. However, they are the worst or among the worst of those people who remain within the religion of Islam. And declaring them to be disbelievers is problematic because in essence it involves a piece of what they do. It involves doing to them what they do to everybody else. In terms of the history of the Khawarij, uh, there are two incidents which occurred prior to the forming of the Khawarij. There are two incidents which occurred prior to the forming of the Khawarij, which are significant. The first is the incident of Dhul Khuwaisira, who was a man who when the Prophet ﷺ was giving out the war booty, he said to him, I'dil ya Muhammad. He said, O Muhammad, be just meaning you are not being fair Why? accusing the Prophet ﷺ of not being fair the Prophet ﷺ said woe to you who will be just if I am not just who can possibly be just if I am not just if I am unfair then who after me could ever be fair some of the companions said O Messenger of Allah let me kill this munafiq the Prophet ﷺ replied to him that he should that he should be left. And he told that there will come from the loins of this person, there will come from this and among from this uh, this individual, from among his people, or from among his descendants. That there will come from this person, and then he mentioned the ahadith regarding the or some of the ahadith regarding the khawarij. The second incident, which it should be considered to be a, the, it should be considered to be prior to the forming of the Khawarij, is the killing of Uthman ibn Affan, And the strongest opinion, the correct opinion, is that Uthman ibn Affan was not killed by the Khawarij proper, but he was killed by a group of people who were just prior to the Khawarij.
and they fell into much of what the Khawarij or some of what the Khawarij fell into, but they were not a formal group. They were a bunch of, of rabble, of people who were very foolish and did not understand the rulings of Islam. And they were fooled by the Munafiqeen into believing that Uthman was a disbeliever and eventually into killing Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. However, they share some of the characteristics of the Khawarij. They're like a precursor or a beginning of the Khawarij because they share some of the same things. Ultimately, they made takfir of the ruler. They declared Uthman ibn Affan anhu arda, to be kafir. And the reasoning that they declared him to be kafir for is very similar to some of the arguments that the Khawarij use today. They said that he imprisons the people of good. Yani he imprisoned either he, he imprisoned the family of the Prophet وسلم, or that he imprisoned the scholars or that so on and so forth. And they said that he hoarded the wealth of the Muslims. And that he didn't share the wealth of the Muslims. And they said that he showed favoritism to his family over people who were more deserving. And these are the same arguments used by the Khawarij today. Or some of the arguments. They're vilifying the rulers because the ruler is hoarding the wealth of the Muslims. Or because the ruler prefers his family over the other people. Or because uh, that he imprisons the, the people who call to the truth or so on and so forth. So these arguments that were used by Uthman, against Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu was still recycled by the Khawarij until today. However, the group did not have a formal aqidah. They did not have a belief like the Khawarij had a belief later on. They did not really have a belief in the sense that the, the Khawarij had a belief in the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib. It was a one-off action against Uthman, but for sure many of the traits within that action were present in the Khawarij later on. But the real appearance of the Khawarij was in the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. And we don't really have time to get into too much detail, but very briefly, when Uthman was killed, the people who killed Uthman effectively forced Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu to take power. And they threatened to kill the people of Medina if he didn't take power. And you should note about this that the Khawarij are like this. Whenever they ask for someone to be in power, they turn against that person once they have taken power. So they, they were told that if you kill Uthman, you replace him with Ali. Ali is the best. Ali should have been in charge. It should never have been Uthman. And that is why the Munafiqeen, they were the founders of the Khawarij and the founders of the Shia. Both of the, these two groups were founded by the Jews and the Munafiqeen. Because they told the people, they went with two, during the time of Uthman, they went with two things. Rebel against Uthman, because Uthman is a disbeliever. And that Ali ibn Abi Talib is more deserving of the rulership than Uthman. And later on this became more deserving of the rulership than Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. 
and saw the foundations of Shiism, Tashayyu' and the foundations of Al-Khuruj, the Khawarij, both of these came from the Munafiqeen and the Jews who spread lies in the Amsar, in the cities that were far away from the Sahaba like Al-Basra and Al-Kufa and Egypt they spread these rumors in these cities and they, they made these movements which came forward so when Uthman ibn Affan was killed the people who killed Uthman demanded that Ali ibn Abi Talib take control of the Muslims when Ali ibn Abi Talib became the Khalifa, they were present within his army. And he was not able to separate between the people who were responsible for the killing of Uthman and the people who were among the righteous Muslims who followed. They were all mixed in together. And various instances or various things happened which the Khawarij rebelled against Ali ibn Abi Talib for. Primarily, the biggest argument that the Khawarij had against Ali ibn Abi Talib, or the one that they used most frequently, is their famous statement based on the ayah in the Quran, in al-hukmu illa lillah. Ruling is only for Allah. So they said to Ali ibn Abi Talib, you have ruled by other than what Allah revealed. I, they accused him of ruling by other than what Allah revealed. And this is the same argument used by the Khawarij today. When you ask the Khawarij, why are you slaughtering the Muslims? Why are you vilifying the rulers? Why are you calling to rebellion? They say, in al-hukmu illa lillah. Ruling is only for Allah. And what they said is exactly as Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib described it. Kalimatu haqqin urida biha batil. It is a word that is true. What they said is true. In al-hukmu illa lillah. Ruling is only for Allah. This is true. But what they intend by this word is something false. I.e. they are using the truth to peddle the falsehood. Nobody doubts that ruling is only for Allah. In al-hukmu illa lillah. Nobody doubts this. However, their understanding of this is a false understanding and it is an evil understanding. And so they accused Ali ibn Abi Talib of being kafir. Why did they accuse Ali ibn Abi Talib of being kafir? For a number of reasons. Number one, that he did not take Aisha radiallahu anha as a slave. When Aisha radiallahu anha uh, went out seeking reconciliation between the Muslims, and then the Munafiqeen caused the two armies to fight. And they fought against one another until the camel of Aisha radiallahu anha was, uh, was stabbed, it was killed, and fell to the ground. And if that were an ordinary battle against an ordinary group of people, then there's no doubt that the, the conclusion of that battle would have been to take the person prisoner. But Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu knew that what happened between the Muslims was not a normal situation and that the people who fought against each other fought against each other for the sake of Allah not for the sake of the dunya not for rebellion but because they believed that they were fighting against the one who oppressed like Allah told us in Surah Al-Hujarat وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ if two groups of the believers 
muqtatal they fight against one another فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا Make peace between them. فَإِنْ بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبَغِي حَتَّى تَفِيئَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ And if one of them transgresses against the other, then fight one group of believers against the other until they return to the command of Allah Azza wa Jal. So ultimately, Ali ibn Abi Talib took Aisha radiallahu an. He said, my mother, my mother, and he sent her back with in a very beautiful way, he, he accompanied her caravan back to Al-Madinah. And he did not say anything against her, nor did he take her as a prisoner. And so the Khawarij said, you have ruled by other than what Allah revealed. Because Allah Azza wa Jal commanded you to kill them or take them as prisoners, and you let them go. This was one of the events. From the events is that, Ali ibn Abi Talib, in his disagreement with Muawiyah they agreed to make peace between one another by a process of having one negotiator from each side make peace between them. And the Khawarij said, In al illa lillah, ruling is only for Allah, and you have chosen to put a negotiator instead of killing Muawiyah and the people who are with him, you have chosen to make a negotiation between them. So you have ruled by other than what Allah revealed and you are not a Muslim. And the Khawarij declared everybody who took part in the process to be kafir, including Ali and Muawiyah and Amr ibn al-As and, and he, lots and lots and lots of, uh, of the companions who took part in the process, they also declared them to be disbelievers because they said that they engaged in a process of ruling by other than what Allah revealed. And there were other instances as well. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, he went to the Khawarij and he debated with them. And a large number of them returned back to the Sunnah because he, he, uh, he argued with them on a number of points regarding Aisha radiallahu anha, he said, which of you would take their own mother as a slave? And how many of you would take their own mother as a slave? And so a number of them returned back. And they said, yes, you are right. It was what we said was wrong. And they returned back. With regard to the negotiation that happened between Ali and Muawiyah, Ibn Abbas said, didn't Allah Azza wa Jal say, Give a negotiator from his side, a negotiator from her side in the case of a disagreement in marriage. And so a number of them turned back. And so on and so on. However, there remained a large group that refused the advice of Abdullah ibn Abbas and they continue to fight against the Muslims. This is just a very brief, I mean, it's not too much about what we're going to talk about today, but just a bit of context about the Khawarij. Now, what are the beliefs of the Khawarij? Traditionally, and we have to say traditionally because you have to understand that groups change and develop. They do not remain the same. No group remains the same. No group remains exactly as they were on the first day until the last day, except for the people of the Sunnah, everybody else is changing and, and adapting. 
However, the Khawarij have certain distinguishing features, things that we can tell them apart from other groups. One is that they declare the Muslims to be disbelievers based on major sins. This is number one. So they declare a person to be a disbeliever based on a sin that they do rather than disbelief. So for example, they say the person who deals in riba is kafir and the person who lies is kafir and the person who cheats another one is kafir and the person who hoards the wealth of the Muslims is kafir. All of these things are sins but they consider the sins to be taking a person outside of Islam. This is one of the fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental signs of the Khawarij. Among their fundamental signs that we have said is their statement that ruling is only for Allah. Meaning, or as they put it today, that, the, that there are people who rule by other than what Allah Azza wa Jal revealed and that they are not Muslims. Any takfir of the person who rules by other than what Allah revealed, mutlaqan. Now this is important because Ahlul Sunnah also said there are cases where a person can rule by other than what Allah revealed and become not Muslim. However, Ahlul Sunnah had limits and restrictions. The Khawarij, they made it universal. Everybody who rules in any single thing or judges in any single thing that goes against the Quran or the Sunnah is kafir. From the signs of the Khawarij that are well known is their use of indiscriminate violence. Any violence which has no ruling or no justification for it in Islam. And it was well known that the, 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 if you like, the, the core or the, the, the target of this violence is primarily the Muslims rather than the non-Muslims. So from the signs of the Khawarij is that they would, as is mentioned in some of the ahadith, that they would kill the people of Iman and leave the people of Al-Awthan. They would leave the worshippers of the idols and kill the people of Iman. In other words, the Khawarij, their efforts and their fighting is primarily against the Muslims rather than against the, against the non-Muslims and the disbelievers. From the signs of the Khawarij is that they are very religious people on the you know, on the outside. The Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, one of you would be, how do I say it, ashamed of their prayer, or one of you would consider their, your prayer to be nothing in comparison to their prayer. I.e. one of the companions would consider their prayer, the prayer of the companions, to be nothing in comparison to the prayer of the Khawarij. They say the best of the speech of mankind. Yani they recite the Quran, they recite uh, the Quran, they say the best of speech of men, they tell people to, 
you know, they tell people to do good, they tell people to forbid evil. But the reality of them is different from the words that they say. So you recognize the Khawarij by the fact that they are generally very religious people. They are not people who you will see them to be openly, you know, for example, disobeying Allah in, in the, or, you know, sort of doing major sins. They are a people who, when you look at them, you see a practicing person. But you hear these warning signs, this takfir based on the major sins, this declaring of people to be disbelievers because they rule by other than what Allah revealed, this uh, indiscriminate and horrific violence against people that has no evidence for it in Islam. And it's well known regarding the Khawarij that they would, for example, and this is, and we might come to some of the evidences, yani some of the historical stuff, that they would come to a person from among the companions, they would slaughter the companions. That they would go to a woman who was pregnant and they would cut out the fetus from her womb. This is the kind of, these are the kind of narrations that are related from the Khawarij. And until this day, the Khawarij continue in this vein with extreme indiscriminate violence, especially against Muslims versus against, yani against non-Muslims. And we will come to some of the other sort of characteristics regarding the Khawarij inshallah later on. But you have an idea of the people you were talking about. We're talking about a people who recite the Quran, a people who talk about implementing the law of Allah. They talk about implementing the Sharia. Ah. They talk about ruling by what Allah revealed. They talk about uh, going back to the Sunnah. They talk about all of you know the, the good things that people should say in Islam. But the essence and the reality of them is this issue of takfir and the declaring of the people to be non-Muslim based on the major sins and various other things that we will come to as we, as we go on. This is the purpose of this discussion is just to give you context. It's not specifically what we're going to talk about today, but just to give you some context. Now, we should be aware, as we said, that groups do not remain static. The Khawarij themselves do not remain static. They do not remain static. They themselves change and they merge with other groups. And uh, this has happened many times in history. So you shouldn't be surprised to see the modern day Khawarij being slightly different. And I'll give you one difference. The Khawarij of old were the most truthful of the people in their normal speech. Why were they the most truthful of the people? Because they considered lying to be a major sin and lying to be disbelief. And they considered the one who lies to be kafir. And that is why the scholars of hadith would often narrate hadith from the Khawarij. Because the Khawarij would not lie about a hadith, generally, in the Khawarij of old, the, the original Khawarij. They would not lie about a hadith. Because they used to consider that the one who lies about a hadith is kafir. And so they would not lie. However, the Khawarij of today, 
think nothing of lying about hadith and lying about ayat and lying about the khawarij of today lie very frequently so there are some differences there are some things that change it there are some influences and we don't really have time to talk about it but there are influences from different groups that have come throughout history and what those groups have influenced over or have caused influence over the khawarij and there are groups who kind of got halfway there but didn't they didn't take all of the beliefs of the khawarij but they took some of the beliefs of the khawarij among them the ikhwan ikhwan al-muslimun the ikhwan al-muslimin they also took many of the beliefs of the khawarij including the belief of rebellion against the ruler and their statement in al hukmu illa lillah and so on and so forth so there are a number of groups who came and they, they kind of came in, in the middle and they took beliefs from other people and they mixed and they became a, a mix-up of different beliefs. However, what we want to talk about today is, the, is the, one of the key areas relating to aqidah and relating to the khawarij. And that is the issue of a takfir the issue of declaring a person to be a non-Muslim and based upon that justifying rebellion against the Muslim rulers. In reality, this is the worst kind of takfir and it's the worst consequence of the takfir that they make. If the khawarij were to make takfir of the ordinary Muslim and suffice it at that, it would be a terrible crime against that person. However, it would not result in what has resulted in the world today. Rather, the danger of the khawarij, the, the, the real, the biggest danger of their takfir is that their takfir leads them into rebellion. I.e., they declare the non-Muslim, they declare the ruler to be non-Muslim and they rebel against that ruler and they cause bloodshed in the land because they effectively rebel and, and fight against those in authority based on the principle that they are not Muslim. So it's takfir and khuruj, takfir and rebellion that causes the biggest problem with the khawarij. Their takfir is a problem. No doubt it is a major sin. To declare another Muslim to be a disbeliever without right is a major sin. But when that declaration of disbelief leads a person to cause the death of hundreds of thousands of people then this is even worse and so what we want to talk about today are those two things combined a takfir and rebellion so rebellion against the ruler based on the concept that the ruler is not a Muslim and this is from the very core sifat the definition of the and the characteristics of the khawarij what we're going to do inshallah ta'ala is we're going to start with a generic refutation and move on to a set or a series of specific refutations. This is very important because the way that we usually deal with things is we don't deal with specifics. If you try to refute a group in specific issues without first refuting them in a general way what will happen is, as we learned when, when some of you studied Keshf al-Shubahat in the earlier Essentials program, what will happen is you will never ever end. You will bring something, they will bring something else. 
You will deal with the issue of riba, they will bring taxes. You will deal with the issue of taxes, they will bring working with the non-Muslims. You will deal with the issue of working with the non-Muslims, they will bring wearing the clothing of the non-Muslims. Then you will bring, deal with this issue of wearing the clothing of the non-Muslims and they will bring another issue that he's not from Quraysh. Then you will deal with the issue that he's not from Quraysh, then they will bring another issue. And they will say yes, but we have not given him the pledge personally. Then you will deal with the issue that you have not given them the pledge personally, then they will bring another issue that he has instated laws that are not based in the Quran. Then you will deal with this issue, then they will bring another one. And you will just keep on going and going and going and they will just keep on bringing up the same thing again and again and again. Therefore, what you have to do is you have to begin with generic principles. I.e., I'm going to give you four principles, inshallah. These four principles more or less kill the arguments of the khawarij dead regardless of what the arguments are. Then we talk about specifics to clarify how that works with regard to various sort of specific issues. And as we said, I think this is extremely important to deal with today. And the reason I chose it as part of the module is all of you are aware that the Khawarij go through phases where they are dominant and phases where they are less dominant. I and mean, there are times when, I mean, the Prophet ﷺ explained to us that they will come until, until the Dajjal comes from among them. They will appear until the Dajjal comes from among them. So they will, they will continue to rise and fall. Rise and fall. Every time a group of them comes, they are cut off. Any, they are cut off, they are killed by the people around them. And then another of them comes up. And then they are killed and another one comes up. We are currently in a time where the Khawarij are resurgent. They are taking, you know, they have a great deal of... of, uh, of uh, you can say that they have a great deal of, of uh, sort of, they have taken a lot of, of what is happening today and a lot of the news and a lot of the sort of control and things that they are doing. They are resurgent in, the, in these times. Therefore, because of the danger of the Khawarij and the danger of our children being affected by them, why is there a danger of our children being affected by them? Why is there more of a danger of our children being affected by the Khawarij than there is by the Shia or by somebody else? Because the Khawarij in their apparent nature are from among the best of the Muslims. You see them with the longest beard and you see them with the longest prayer and you see them with the most beautiful recitation of the Quran and you see them telling the people to order good and forbid the evil. So if we and our children are not aware of what they really have underneath when you scrape away the surface, then many people will be fooled by them, as many people have been fooled by them in the past. And it only, you only have to see the statistics of the number of young Muslim men and women who have gone to places like Syria to join the Khawarij. Because of their confusion, regarding the apparent religious, the religious nature of them. When you look at them, you, see, you look at them and you see very religious people. You see Sharia, you see Islam, you see Quran, you see Sunnah. But anyone who knows the reality of them, you just scratch the surface just a millimeter and you see the reality of them. However, unless we understand this and we understand how to respond to them, the fear is that many more children and many more young people will go and leave and go to join these people uh, as happened in the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib and after that 
as the Khawarij went through their periods of resurgence and falling down and then resurging again. So we want to deal with this ma the major issue that they have, which is the issue of takfir and rebellion. And we want to answer it with four principles. Before that, let's just make sure that we're clear about what we're talking about with these two terms. What is, the what is takfir? That's the first issue. Takfir is declaring somebody else to be kafir. And he's declaring someone to be kafir. Such as a statement of one person to another, you are a kafir, or you are not a Muslim, or you have left Islam. This is what we call takfir. And takfir is something present in the Quran and in the sunnah of the Prophet And this is another danger because when you see the khawarij making takfir of people, they will say, isn't takfir present in the Quran? Didn't the Prophet ﷺ declare some people not to be Muslim? No doubt. Allah Azza wa Jal said, for example, لَقَدْ كَفَرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ ثَالِثُ ثَلَاثَ Those who say that Allah is one of three have disbelieved. This is takfir. However, where Ahlul Sunnah differ from the Khawarij is that the Khawarij make takfir without proper rulings and regulations and without the proper understanding and this is also a danger because what you will hear in these days is you will hear the people of the sunnah being attacked especially in the west and then being you know arrested and attacked and you know threatened why because a group of the muslims say anybody who makes takfir of anyone is from the khawarij so for example, the Sufiya come along and they say, <coughs> these people who say we are from Ahlul Sunnah, they are also from the Khawarij. Because they also make takfir. They make takfir of the one who goes to the grave and seeks help from the dead. They make takfir of the Jews and the Christians. We don't make takfir of the Jews and the Christians. We say everyone is fine, Jews, Christians, everyone will go to Jannah. If you hear someone saying a Christian is kafir, know this person, he is just from the Khawarij. And so they make it that everybody who makes takfir of anyone is from the khawarij. And this is a big mistake. Takfir is present in the Quran. Takfir is present in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Takfir is present in every book of fiqh which deals of the four madhahib. Has hukum al-murtad, the ruling of the apostate. How can you have a ruling of an apostate if you don't have takfir? And if we say that there is no such thing as takfir, then that means there is no such thing as apostasy. And if there is no such thing as apostasy, then all of these chapters in the books of fiqh, hukm al-murtad, the ruling of the murtad, all of them are invalid. Because you can only have apostasy if you have takfir. However, where the difference between Ahlul Sunnah and the Khawarij is that Ahlul Sunnah consider takfir to be a very, very serious thing. And something that is not rushed into without extreme detail and checking. And generally, it is the prerogative of the scholars. It is the ruling of the scholars, not of the ordinary people. We don't make takfir of people. And we don't sit here saying Muhammad is kafir and Fatima is kafir. We leave pr pr pronouncements or declarations of takfir 
to the scholars and we take it extremely seriously and we do not make takfir except on based on those things that Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam made takfir based upon as for the khawarij they consider takfir to be the easiest of the rulings and you see them sitting eating breakfast and it's just fulan is kafir and kafir and kafir and kafir and kafir and they think it to be the lightest of them of matters and they allow everybody to do it there's another difference they allow everybody to do it any scholar jahil you know the person who just joined them last week when he comes the first thing he's allowed to do is make takfir of everybody thirdly they themselves make takfir based upon issues that are not licensed in the quran and the sunnah so they make takfir based on the major sins they make takfir based on opposition to them and whoever opposes us is kafir like the statement of daesh whoever does not recognize our khilafa is kafir and anyone who doesn't agree with me is kafir you don't agree with me kafir this is from the exact statements of the khawarij if you don't agree with me you are kafir so there are differences between the takfir that is done by ahlus sunnah and the takfir that is done by the khawarij the takfir that is done by ahlus sunnah we take it extremely seriously we leave it to the scholars and we only make takfir based on those things which allah and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam made takfir over as for the khawarij they take it lightly they allow everybody to do it and they base it on things which are not based in the quran and the sunnah like their statement that you have ruled by other than what allah revealed and their statement that whoever does not agree with us is kafir and so on and their statement that whoever takes riba is kafir and whoever lies is kafir and the muslims are all in a state of kufr because they don't recognize us or they don't believe in us or they don't accept us and so on so we want to answer this sickness with four basic principles and these principles i have found them to be very important i'm taking these by the way from a book which i have translated uh, i translated it when i was in riyadh uh, this book is a book by sheikh bandar ibn naif al-utaybi it's a modern book and it's called wajadilhum billati hi ahsan respond to them in the way that is best it's not published to the best of my knowledge but i will try to give you a copy anyways inshallah uh, but uh, the book is published in arabic in any case and the book basically is the sheikh he worked a lot with rehabilitating people from the khawarij <laughs> into society and as you know the saudis have a big rehabilitation program where they take people and they rehabilitate them and they help them to kind of understand the sunnah and get back into society and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but in any case they have this program and the sheikh spent a lot of time debating with these people and he produced a book which basically summarizes the arguments that he uses to debate the the doubts that these people put forward and generally it's a good book my only criticism of the book somewhat is that sometimes the sheikh tends to rely upon modern day scholars now there's nothing wrong with that and i don't blame him for doing that however you have to be aware that that argument doesn't work 
when you are debating with the Khawarij, this argument does not work. The minute you start quoting a Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah, Sheikh Nusaymin, rahimahullah, the argument doesn't work because they, in the first place, say you are quoting scholars who are working for the government. And so they don't accept your statement. It's better that you rely upon the classical scholars. There's nothing wrong with what those shaykh said, that what the shaykh said is perfectly valid. However, when you are debating with these people in initially, it is better that you restrict yourself to the statements of the classical scholars because it's very hard for them to argue against the statements of the classical scholars. They themselves are giving out the books of Ibn Taymiyyah. By the way, they are doing this exactly, exactly like the Munafiqeen. They give out the books of Ibn Taymiyyah to make a problem for us, not because they believe in what is written in them. They want to make a problem for us, so they distribute the books of Ibn Taymiyyah, and then they say, look, everyone who has these books is one of us. And then the, the Muslims have, the Muslims suffer from the, the effects of this. But it's better that you quote people like Ibn Taymiyyah, like the Imam, the four Imams, like uh, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, like Al-Imam al-Nawawi. It's better that you quote these people rather than quoting Sheikh bin Baz, Sheikh bin Thaymeen, and so on. Because it's stronger in the argument. It's harder for them to turn around and say, Al-Imam al-Nawawi was working for the government. Al-Imam al-Nawawi, Al-Imam al-Hafidh ibn Hajar was... Uh, a, a spy and so on and so forth this is hard for them to say where it's easy for them to say about a Sheikh bin Baz, a Sheikh bin Uthaymeen, the shiukh of our time they say oh they were living in a country they were employed by the country they were you know officials of the country and so on whereas it's easier to quote the classical scholars so my one criticism of the book is that he sometimes overly quotes from modern-day scholars. However, I think that generally the effort is, is, uh, is a very good one. And his arguments are well-researched and well-put across and very, very simple. He doesn't complicate it. He doesn't like go into like very complicated fiqh. He just keeps it very, very, very simple. So, principle number one of the four gen general principles. Principle number one. Muslims have been commanded to verify the information they received or they receive. This is principle number one. Muslims have been commanded to verify information which they receive. Muslims have been commanded to verify information which they receive. He said, since not all claims which are made about the rulers are true, so information should be verified first. Based on this, we say that a lot of the arguments which are raised are nothing more than allegations which have no proof. This is, ex this is anyone, you know, you can see the expertise of the author. By the fact that anyone who spends time speaking with people who have this ideology, or debating with them, or trying to convince them to come back to the truth, will know that 90% of the arguments they raise have no evidence for them at all. And so before you even start responding to arguments, your first issue should be, is what you are saying even true? What is the evidence for this? The evidence for this is in Surah Al-Hujarat, 
that Allah Azza wa Jal said, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu in jaakum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayyanu an tusibu qawman bijahalatin fatusbihu ala ma fa'altum nadimin. Allah said, O you who have believed, if there comes to you a disobedient person with information, investigate. Lest you harm a people out of ignorance and become regretful over what you have done. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said in his fatawa, whenever information is heard from a fasiq, it should be verified and investigated first. And it shouldn't be judged as true or false unless there is clear evidence. As Allah Azza wa Jal said, if there comes to you a disobedient one with news, verify. And Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala said in his fatawa, Allah related this need to investigate to the fear of regret and remorse, which might happen when punishing an innocent person for a sin he didn't commit. The Prophet said in Sunan Abi Dawood, do not carry out the prescribed punishments when there is doubt. It is better for a ruler to mistakenly pardon someone than to mistakenly punish them. This is in Sunan Abi Dawood. That it is better for a person to mistakenly pardon than mistakenly punish. In other words, when it comes to takfir, it is better for you to say somebody is a Muslim when they are really a kafir then it is for you to say somebody is a kafir when they are really a Muslim. And it's better for you to err on the side of caution. So if a matter comes down to mistakenly punishing an innocent person or mistakenly letting a guilty person go, the latter is the better of the two mistakes. And Al-Hafidh Ibn Kathir, Rahimullah Ta'ala said in his tafsir, Allah orders us to verify information given to us by a fasiq as a precaution in order that we do not count in it only to find it to be a lie or to be a mistake. This first principle, as we said, is designed to remove a very, very common misconception which is peddled by the Khawarij which is that they rely upon reports which are not proven and you can usually respond to a huge number of their arguments through this by saying that they are relying upon information which comes from things which are not proven it is also important that we note that the ayah talks about a fasiq a disobedient person. However, the ayah, as the scholars say, encompasses the anonymous person as well. How does the ayah encompass the anonymous person? This is important because sometimes you will speak to the khawarij, or one of them, and you will say to them, they will say to you, the ruler does X, Y, Z. Yani he has done this or that. Yani every night before he goes to bed, he takes an innocent child and kills them. You say, okay. What evidence do you have for this thing that he does every night? Or somebody told him. Okay, this somebody, do you know who he is? They say, no, he's anonymous. You say, didn't Allah say, They say, ah, the ayah says, Not anonymous. 
And the person who came to me was anonymous. He was not fasiq. He was not disobedient. He was anonymous. The anonymous person is included in the ayah by default. Why? For two reasons. Number one, an anonymous person may be disobedient. You don't know whether they are obedient or disobedient. And if you don't know whether they are obedient or disobedient, then they come under the ruling of the fasiq. And secondly, the reason that you have been given is أَن تُصِيبُوا قَوْمًا بِجَهَالًا Lest you afflict a people out of ignorance. So the fear is that you're going to affect somebody out of ignorance. Now is it possible that based on anonymous information you might affect a person out of ignorance? Yes. If you base it on anonymous information, it's very possible that you would affect a person based upon ignorance so the first thing that we do when we're faced with their arguments is we ask which of these have any proof for them because you tell us this person does this this person does this this person said this this person said that but you don't bring us any evidence the reports are one of two things either they are based upon the reports of people who are known disobedient people or they are based upon anonymous reports somebody saw somebody said somebody heard somebody did when you ask them who they say allahu a'lam nobody knows except allah so ultimately we cannot base takfir of anybody not the ruler or anybody else based on anonymous information it has to be based upon reliable information that is proven not information that comes from the kuffar not information that comes from the non-muslims not information that comes from the evil muslims who are disobedient and who are disobeying allah and definitely not information that comes from anonymous sources so we first of all deal with this issue the second principle let's just say that we have moved on beyond the first one yani the first one what what they are saying is proven what they are saying is is proven so now we've got rid of the stuff that they say that is not proven now we've come to the stuff that is proven and it's of no doubt this principle Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah have reached consensus that it is not permissible to rebel against the ruler except in the case that he falls into open disbelief. There is consensus that it is not permissible to rebel against the ruler except that he falls into open disbelief. Based on this, we say that a lot of the arguments which are raised are nothing more than sins which do not reach the level of disbelief so for example you are debating with them in the first time they bring you some things that are not proven you say this is not proven they say okay the ruler deals in interest this is proven you can go and see the national bank with interest-based loans you can go there yourself we say interest-based loans are they open disbelief or not 
And we're going to come to an argument that they will argue that they are. But in general, yani riba is disbelief or it's a sin. Riba is a sin. And there is consensus that it is not permissible to rebel against a ruler or a governor based upon a sin that they do unless that sin reaches the level of open disbelief. So we say, in the first instance, most of what you say is not true. In the second instance, what you say that is true is a sin and it is not disbelief. What is the explanation or the proof for this? We'll start with a quote by Al-Imam Al-Nawawi in his explanation of Sahih Muslim regarding Hadith 4747, 4747. As for rebelling against them and fighting them, it is forbidden by scholarly consensus of the Muslims even if they are defiantly disobedient and oppressors. There are many sayings that support this and Ahl-Sunnah have reached scholarly consensus that the ruler is not to be removed because of his disobedience to Allah. And Imam al-Nawawi is commenting on the chapter in Sahih Muslim, the chapter of the obligation of obeying the rulers. Al-Imam Muslim has a chapter, the obligation of obeying the rulers. And in it, Al-Imam al-Nawawi says, it is forbidden by scholarly consensus of the Muslims. Even if the ruler is defiantly disobedient, even if he is doing every sin that a person can do, and even if he is extremely oppressive, and he is taking the money and stealing and beating and killing and maiming and doing all of these things. This does not remove the obligation of obeying him. That's the statement of Imam al-Nawawi. What did Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar say in Fath al-Bari? Explaining Hadith 7054 from, hadith, from, from Sahih al-Bukhari. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, Ibn Battal said, in this hadith there is a proof of not rebelling against the ruler even if he is a tyrant. Even if he is a tyrant. The scholars of jurisprudence are of scholarly consensus regarding the obligation of obeying the ruler who establishes himself by force, the obligation of performing jihad with him, and that obligation or obedience to him is better than rebellion against him because it will prevent the shedding of blood and will calm the masses the proof in this is this narration and the other narrations, i.e. the narration in Sahih al-Bukhari, they did not make any exception to this except if the ruler falls into obvious disbelief. This is quoting from Ibn Battal who is quoted by Al-Hafidh Ibn Hajar in Fath al-Bari. All of these are quoting from hadith in the first place. You can go back to the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. There are many tens of hadith regarding this issue. However, we're quoting the proof of ijma', the consensus of all of the Muslims that the sin that a person does does not equate to disbelief and does not equate to rebellion if they are in, or in a position of responsibility for or over the Muslims. And this is in opposition to the Khawarij because the Khawarij are of the opinion that there is no obedience 
if the ruler or governor is sinful. And bear in mind the Khawarij did not make any distinction between the ruler and the governor, the overall ruler of the Muslims or the governor of a particular region. They said in every case, if this person is sinful, there is no obedience to them. So it doesn't matter if the person in responsibility drinks alcohol or commits zina or oppresses the people, it's not permissible to rebel against them. That doesn't mean you obey them in the sin that they tell you to do. If they tell you to do a sin, you don't obey them in the sin. However, you don't rebel against them because of a sin that they do. This is the second principle. The third principle. And we're still going in stages. So the first time you spoke to the, when you were speaking to the Khawarij, the Khariji, this person, he says to you all of these stories. You say to him, these are stories, you have no proof. He says, okay, I have a proof. My proof is that the person in responsibility over the Muslims is dealing in riba. We say dealing in riba is a sin and it's not kufr. Therefore, we do not consider him to be kafir because of this. And the strangest thing is that you see these people, especially those ones who are the, yani the mujahideen of the keyboard, and they sit there typing all day on the internet. These people, you see them, their own father has a mortgage. And you say, your father has a mortgage. He says, yeah, my father, Allah, yarhamu. You know, Allah have mercy on him. He's just a bit misguided. You know, inshallah, we, we are working on guiding him. You say, so how do you make takfir of this one because he deals in riba and you don't make takfir of your own father who has a mortgage? Is this ruling by what Allah revealed? Should we not apply the same ruling to them and say, Whoever doesn't, dis doesn't rule by what Allah revealed, it is they who are the disbelievers. That is why you see them and a group of them in the UK, especially many of them, you see them themselves, they are fusak. They are sinful. You see them with the shaved beard and the tawb is below the ankles and his wife doesn't wear hijab and so on and so forth. And he says we should establish sharia in the land. See, Habibi, establish sharia on your face before you establish sharia on the land. And he, subhanallah, these are people who, wallahi, they could not establish the sharia in their back garden. And yet they tell the people about establishing the sharia and the hukum. So in reality, you see that there is in many of them, not in all of them, but in many of them, there is a disparity between what they allow themselves and their family to do and what they accuse people of. But in any case, we said, sins do not make a person a kafir. Sins do not make a person a kafir. Principle number three. Not every person who commits an act of disbelief becomes a disbeliever. Not every person who commits an act of disbelief becomes a disbeliever. So this is the third argument. This is, this is after you've dealt with the first one. And everything you said, 90% of it was not true. Of the 10% left, 90% of the 10% which is left is sins and are not kufr. Okay, we are left with any 1% of the total, which are actual acts of kufr. So we say, not everyone who does an act of kufr is kafir.
Not everyone who does an act of kufr is kafir. There is a difference between an act of disbelief and between becoming a disbeliever. There is a big difference between the two. And when we understand this difference, we can answer the remaining portion of what they argue. They said, okay, we agree with you. Riba is a sin, it's not disbelief. But having allegiance to the non-Muslims, this is disbelief. And this one you can't argue. So he sits there and he says, now I have. You can argue that actual allegiance to the disbelievers we're going to talk about later does not have to be disbelief. But in any case, let's just say that it's disbelief for the purpose of argument. Not everyone who does disbelief becomes a disbeliever. Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said in his fatawa, not everyone who makes a mistake in something which is an act of disbelief is a disbeliever, especially in complicated matters of considerable dispute among the ummah. Not everyone who makes a mistake in something which is an act of disbelief is a disbeliever. He also said, it is not allowed for anyone to pronounce any Muslim a disbeliever because of a mistake or an error which they fall into unless the proof is established against them and the proof becomes clear to them. And whoever's Islam has been established, it cannot be taken away based on doubt. Whoever's Islam is established by certainty, it cannot be taken away based on doubt. It cannot be taken away from them except the proof is being established against them and all of their misconceptions being eliminated. And he also said, whenever certain people heard the early scholars say, whoever says such and such is a disbeliever, the one who heard this believed that this encompasses everyone who makes the statement, meaning everyone who says this statement becomes a disbeliever. They did not consider that declaring someone a disbeliever has conditions and impediments. This is important. For someone to be declared a disbeliever, there must be conditions which are present and there must be impediments which are absent. Yani there should be shurut and mawani. There should be things which are present and things which are absent. This is made clear by the fact that Imam Ahmed and the majority of the Imams who made these statements did not declare the majority of the individual people to be disbelievers. And if, for example, you hear Imam Ahmed saying, whoever says the Quran is created, for example, whoever says that the Quran is created is a disbeliever. But you did not see him saying that the majority of people who said this were disbelievers. And he did not rebel against the ruler when the ruler made this statement. Why? Because there is a difference between an act of disbelief and becoming a disbeliever. And he also said, the intended meaning here is that the position of the imams is based upon the concept that there is a difference between the general ruling and the application of that ruling to an individual. And there is a difference between the general ruling of takfir and applying that ruling to Muhammad and Fatima and Abdullah and Maryam. And he also said, 
declaring one of these ignorant people and the likes of them to be disbelievers such that they are ruled to be from the disbelievers is not permissible unless the Islamic proof is established against one of them which makes clear to them that they are in opposition to the prophets even if this statement of theirs is one which is undoubtedly disbelief the same approach is taken whenever applying a ruling of disbelief to an individual i.e. whenever there is, there is a, a stage between establishing a statement of disbelief and applying that statement to an individual Al-Imam Abu Hanifa made a statement of disbelief against the one who says that Allah is everywhere and he said whoever says that I doubt whether Allah is in the heavens or on the earth is a disbeliever or words to that effect and Abu Hanifa declared a statement of disbelief upon the one who says Allah is everywhere however nobody applied this to the general Muslims who make this statement nobody not one of the scholars applied this to the general Muslims who make this statement they applied it to the one who understands it the one who is free of misconceptions the one who doesn't have any doubts the one who knows that what they are saying is a statement of disbelief that is who they applied it to they did not apply it to the general Muslims the general Muslim comes and says Allah is everywhere nobody from the scholars said this person is kafir rather they said this person has made a statement of kufr there is a difference between the two this person has made a statement of kufr but nobody said that they are kafir because re the reality of the statement is that they are confused they don't know what it means they have confusion over some ayat they heard the ayat and then they became confused or they or the statement that Allah is closer to you than your jugular vein and they became confused about this statement and based on this they said that Allah is everywhere so their statement is not based on their statement is a statement of kufr but it's based upon confusion and misconceptions or somebody gave them a fatwa their scholar gave them a fatwa that it is permissible and so on and so forth so what are these conditions and what are these impediments there are basically four conditions and four impediments there are four sort of key conditions that have to be present to go from kufr to kafir number one knowledge as opposed to ignorance number one knowledge as opposed to ignorance i.e. the person must know that what they are doing is disbelief they must not be ignorant of what they are doing now we don't want to get into the issue of al-udhar this is a long 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 issue it's a big problem it's a lot of there's a lot of ikhtilaf about to what extent is ignorance allowed in justifying an act of kufr this is a disagreement among the scholars there are doctorate theses that have been written on this topic to what extent is ignorance allowed as an excuse for an act of disbelief but in any case there is no disagreement among the scholars that a person has to have a certain degree of knowledge of what they are doing and they cannot be ignorant number two they must have done so deliberately not mistakenly so if a person mistakenly said such a word or mistakenly did such a thing then this does not count number three they must have done so out of choice 
not out of compulsion. And number four, they must not have any misinterpretation of the texts or any misconceptions. And it helps here to say any acceptable misconceptions. Because somebody could have like, I mean, you could have a crazy misconception that doesn't count. But generally, the person must know what they are doing. They must do so deliberately. They must do so out of choice. And they must do so without any misconceptions or misinterpretations of what they are doing. And especially number four. Because number four is really the majority of the difference between us and the khawarij when it comes to takfir based on, on acts of kufr. Is that so many of these things, people have misinterpretations. When you speak to them, they say, my sheikh said to me, the mufti said to me, it's okay. He said to me, it's not kufr. He said to me, it's, it's acceptable. Or there is ikhtilaf. Or one of the madahib said, it's okay. Or some of the scholars said, it's allowed. Or I follow the opinion that it is permissible or I follow the opinion that it's a necessity <coughs> so this is also an important point that any misinterpretation the Prophet ﷺ informed us about the hudud we said the prescribed punishments are not carried out when there is doubt if you don't chop off a person's hand when there is doubt over whether he stole so what is the example of this a person goes into Let's say, for example, a shop and he opens the safe and he takes 10,000 dirhams and he leaves. He gets caught by the police. They take him to the court. The judge says to him, okay, you have stolen from the safe and you stole 10,000 dirhams. I'm going to command for your hand to be cut off. He says, hold on a second. I didn't steal. That person in the shop owed me 10,000 dirhams and he refused to give it to me. So I just took it from him because he's not giving me my money back. In this case, by consensus, there is no punishment for the person. Even though they are wrong, what they did is still wrong and what they did is still theft. However, there is consensus that this person is not to be, not to have the punishment carried out. Why? Because of a particular principle which is that the prescribed punishments are not carried out when there is doubt he has a doubt his doubt or his confusion is he thinks what he did is halal he thinks what he is doing is halal because he thinks that he is just taking back the the debt that he was owed if this is the ruling regarding theft then how about the ruling regarding kufr which is far 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 greater and far more serious than the issue of theft the worst thing that can happen in theft is you lose your hand. The worst thing that can happen in kufr is you lose your life. Therefore, it is even more deserving not to be applied in the presence of doubt. Somebody says, I believe that this is the truth, or I think this is right, or I understood the ayah like this, or my sheikh told me the ayah means this. We do not apply the ruling of kufr to this person in the case where this doubt uh, exists until that doubt is clarified and they understand that what they are doing is is disbelief the fourth principle
And again, these go in stages. So what is left now? You got rid of the false news. You got rid of the sins which are not disbelief. You got rid of the disbelief which doesn't make someone a kafir. So now you have to think what is left now. What is left is the issue of rebelling against the kafir if they are kafir in the first place. So now let's presume that this person is kafir. They are absolute kafir. Yani they are like not a Muslim in any way. Rebelling against the disbelieving ruler has conditions. It has conditions. Number one, the ability to do so. That's the first one, the ability to do so. Number two, being able to put a Muslim in his place. So as for removing a disbeliever to replace him with another disbeliever, then this is not permissible. Or removing a disbeliever to replace him with a system of disbelief is not permissible. Number three, the absence of a greater evil in doing so. Number three, the absence of a greater evil in doing so. So number one, let's just say, all of the scholars said this person is not a Muslim. You have to have three things. You have to have the ability to remove that person. Not that that person has tanks and guns and armies and bombs and soldiers and whatever and you have a stick and a kitchen knife. Not like this. Yani the person should, there should be an ability to remove that person. Number two, you should be able to have confidence that that person will be replaced by a Muslim. Not that you simply take away the disbeliever and replace him with another disbeliever who is worse than the first disbeliever that you took away. And number three, and this one is the biggest and the most important, the absence of a greater evil. Because what most people don't understand is that when they rebel against the disbelieving ruler, they most of the time have an evil which is far greater than the evil which they are seeking to remove. And you only have to pick any country in which the Muslims rebelled against a disbelieving ruler. I don't mean rebelled against a Muslim. I mean an open disbeliever. And you can see, you can pick those countries where the disbelief, the, 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 the ruler was known to be kafir. There is no doubt about it. And you see that, number one, usually they did not have the ability to do it. And they were there throwing stones and the ruler was dropping chemicals and bombs and all these things upon them. And they were, they were, all they had is stones and knives. Or they had some rudimentary weapons and the ruler had an air force and tanks and so on and so forth. Number two, they had no knowledge whatsoever that they will be able to put a Muslim in his place. No knowledge at all. They had no foresight that they will be able to put a Muslim in his place. And number three, the evil that happened when they did it was far, far worse than the evil of that person. And if that ruler was killing, let's just give it an arbitrary number. Let's say he was killing 5,000 people a year. 
He was imprisoning and killing 5,000 people a year, kidnapping them from the streets and killing them. Except that in the first day of their rebellion, 50,000 people were killed. Any 10 years worth of what the ruler took 10 years to do, they did in one day. That is not permissible to do. And that is not, a, not an exaggeration. And if you look at the statistics, look at any of these countries where these, these things have happened. What the ruler did in 10 years, they did in one day. In terms of killing and destroying the wealth of the people and the people being kicked out of their homes and the women being abused and all of these things that happened, what happened in one day was worse than what the ruler did in 10 years. Even though he was a disbeliever. As Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, there is almost no known group who rebelled against those in authority except that in doing so, it made more corruption than it eliminated. And the corruption was worse than the corruption that it eliminated. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said in Fath al-Bari, it is not permissible to obey him in his disbelief, meaning the disbeliever. It is obligatory to fight him for those who are able. And Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, whoever among the believers is living in a land in which they are meek and oppressed or during a period of time in which they are weak and oppressed, he should act according to the ayah which orders patience and pardoning of those who offend Allah and his messenger from among the people of the book and the polytheists. As for the people who are living at a time and a place of strength, they should act according to the ayah which orders fighting against the leaders of disbelief who attack Islam and the ayah which orders fighting against the people of the book until they pay the jizya while they are humbled. And Shaykh al-Islam said there are two situations. If the Muslims are living under a disbeliever and, that di and the Muslims are in a position of extreme strength and that disbeliever is in a position of weakness, then they act upon their statement. فَقَاتِلُوا أَئِمَّةَ الْكُفْرِ fight against the leaders of disbelief and they uh, they act upon the ayah of fighting against the people of the book until they give the jizya as for if they are in a state where the Muslims are relatively weak and the disbeliever who is commanding them is relatively strong then they act according to the ayah of patience and pardoning those who offend Allah and his messenger from among the people of the book and the polytheists. Sheikh Ibn Thaymin, he has a slightly different way of explaining this, which is quite, I think is quite useful, and it's worth just adding as an, as a, like an appendix to what, we, uh, to what we said. The Sheikh said there are three conditions, or think of them as four. Number one, that you see. This is number one. That you see. Number one, that you see. Number two, open. Number three, disbelief. Number four, for which you have a proof from Allah. This is based on the hadith. Unless you see kufran, bawaha, clear disbelief, that you have a proof from Allah. So the Shaykh said four. 
how does this relate? Number one, that you see, i.e., that it's not from the news of a fasiq, it's not from the anonymous person that you see. Number two, open, i.e., that the disbelief should be clear that there are no misconceptions around it, there are no doubts over it. The major sins, no, these are not areas of open disbelief, but open disbelief. Number three, it should be disbelief. It should not be sin or something like that. And number four, you should have a proof from Allah for what it is that you are going to do. And so that's a useful, that's another way of, uh, that is another way of, of explaining the same thing. So this completes the general response to the arguments of the Khawarij with regard to takfir and rebellion. And it's very, very simple. One, two, three, four. Number one, most of what you say is not true. Number two, if it is true, most of what you say is, are sins and are not kufr. Number three, if it is kufr, then not everyone who does an act of kufr is kafir. And number four, if they are kafir, then not every kafir is to be rebelled against. And this destroys the arguments of the khawarij from the beginning to the end, if it is used properly. However, as the Shaykh said in Kashf al-Shubahat, and as we studied in Kashf al-Shubahat, many people will not understand this argument. The only people who will understand this argument are those people who have been given the tawfiq from Allah to understand the argument. And many people will not understand. You will say this to them and they will just keep on recycling the same thing again. They will say, okay, but he deals in riba. We've just explained to you. And first of all, do you have a proof that he deals in riba? And do you have a proof that this was his decision and it was done personally by him or not? They say, yeah, we have a proof. I have his signature right here. Okay. Riba is a sin or is it kufr? Say, no, it's a sin. But he did it in a way that's kufr. Okay, kufr. Does everyone who does, does kufr, is everyone who does kufr a kafir? No. So ultimately you have an argument for every single thing that they bring. However, many times we have to deal with the specifics as well. It's not always the case that we can deal with the, the general arguments. Sometimes we have to deal with the specific arguments as well. Now, I mentioned a number in there. Now, I'm going to give you the book, so it's actually not difficult for you to read them yourself because we don't have a lot of time today. Uh, we have to stop in about 15, 20 minutes to do something a little bit different at the end, inshallah. Uh, but for the next 20 minutes, we'll cover one or two, just so you see the methodology of the author. After that, the rest of them that are mentioned in the, uh, in the notes, I w you guys can make notes on them yourself, because the book is very easy to read. It's very, very, very simple. It's not like, it's very, it's not, it doesn't have anything complicated in it at all. So, let's see what our first one was. Our first one was, they try to sidestep your argument completely. And they say, okay, everything you've said to me, I agree. Totally agree. I agree with everything you said. But all of this only applies to the ruler who is appointed legitimately. So you understand the argument. They say, everything you've said is correct. However, this only applies to the legitimate ruler. As for the ruler who takes power by force, or the one who is not from Quraysh, 
or so on and so on and so on. Like the one who does not fulfill the rule, the ruling or the the requirements of rulership, then this one, none of what you've said applies. And all of the evidence you have applied applies only to the legitimate ruler, not to the illegitimate ruler. So what do we say to them? We say to them that the requirement of legitimacy is a requirement at the time of being chosen, not after the ruler has been chosen. I mean, this is when people are choosing the Prophet ﷺ commanded to choose the overall leader of the Muslims from Quraysh. But he did not specify that only Quraysh is to be, are to be obeyed. And if he's not from Quraysh, he is not to be obeyed. From this is the hadith of Abu Hurairah. Or we'll just quote as an example. The hadith in Sahih uh, Muslim 4681 in Sahih al-Bukhari 3501 from Ibn Umar. The Khilafah will remain in the hands of Quraysh as long as two of them remain. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, and we've quoted this already, that Ibn Battal said, the scholars of jurisprudence are of consensus regarding the obligation of obeying the ruler who establishes himself by force. And Abdul Latif and Abdurrahman ibn Hassan, he said, the people of knowledge are in complete agreement in obeying those who overcome them by force in that which is good. They hold the opinion that his ruling should be carried out and his rulership is valid. And there are not even two people who disagree over this. Abu Dhar said in a hadith in Sahih Muslim 4732, My beloved friend commanded me to listen and obey even if the ruler was a slave with mutilated limbs. Now a slave with mutilated limbs does not fulfill the conditions. This is the important point here. A slave with mutilated limbs does not fulfill the conditions of rulership because one of the conditions that is agreed upon in all, by all of the four imams is that the ruler must not be a slave. Why? Because a slave is under the control of his master and the master could extract from the ruler concessions and bribes and so on and you know because he's in charge of him. So all of the four imams agree that it is not permissible to rebel against or that it is not permissible to rebel against a slave and a slave does not fulfill the conditions of rulership therefore we say that the conditions of rulership are not relevant when it comes to obedience versus disobedience they are only relevant when choosing the ruler in the first place as abu dar said the prophet ﷺ commanded me to hear and obey even if the ruler was a slave with mutilated limbs. And in the hadith of Umm al-Hussein, may Allah be pleased with her in Sahih Muslim 4793, if a mutilated slave is placed in command over you and he leads you with the book of Allah, then listen and obey. Al-Imam al-Nawawi said, a slave could become a ruler if another ruler appointed him or if he overcame the country by force i.e. this is a proof that uh, it is possible for the slave to become the ruler and in either of those two cases the slave has to be obeyed even though the slave is not does not fulfill the 
the conditions of uh, rulership. Al-Ghazali has a similar statement in which he said regarding the prohibition of replacing someone less deserving with someone who is more deserving. So this is the case where they say, okay, the person who is in charge is not the best person among us. There are better people among us. Al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, he said, the core benefit should not be ruined out of a desire to achieve fringe benefits like the one who builds a castle and destroys a city. I.e. that you are, what you are doing is you are causing bloodshed and destruction in the land for the sake of one small benefit, one fringe benefit, having someone who is a bit better than the one who is there at the moment. And you are like the person who builds a castle and destroys a city. From the principles of the Sharia which support this as well is the principle that repelling negative consequences is given pre precedence over obtaining positive results. This is a principle of the Sharia. Repelling negative consequences has precedence over obtaining positive results. And if there is a negative in what you are doing and what you are doing is intended to achieve a positive result, the negative takes precedence over the positive. And the second principle, it is not possible to, it is not permissible to remove evil with something which is more evil than it. And if someone wants to uh, get some information about this, you can read uh, Ibn al-Qayyim's statement in I'lam al muwaqqeen uh, volume uh, 3, page 12. We'll cover one more argument, inshallah, and then I think we have to, we have to stop. What I want you to just be aware of while we're doing this, and I think this is, this is also something very important is, who are we quoting from? We are quoting from classical scholars, scholars who are considered to be classical scholars, generally. We're quoting from Al-Imam Al-Nawawi, Al-Hafidh Ibn Hajar, Ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Imam Ahmad, Al-Imam Al-Shafi'i. And we're quoting from classical scholars. This is a, should be a, a proof for you that these arguments have been answered by the classical scholars. Don't think that this is something new, that they haven't been answered, they haven't been dealt with. These issues have been dealt with long, long ago. So it's very easy for you to bring those arguments forward from those books, inshallah. And when you get the full copy of the book, the book has quotes and references and you can cross-reference it, inshallah. So we're going to now deal with the next argument, which is, the le which is legitimizing rebellion against the fasiq or the innovator or the oppressor. And in other words, if the person oppresses me, I can rebel. If the person is a terrible Muslim who doesn't practice Islam at all and doesn't do anything they're supposed to do, then I can rebel. Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala an said, and this hadith is in Bukhari, 
4748. The Prophet وسلم, called us and we gave him the Pledge of Allegiance. From that which he held us to that we give, was that we give the Pledge of Allegiance and we would listen and obey in that which suits us and that which doesn't, at times of hardship and times of ease, and if the ruler behaves selfishly towards us, and that we would not remove from power people who were appointed. Except if you see open disbelief for which you have a proof from Allah. This is the hadith of Ubadah ibn al-Samit. The pledge of allegiance that we would listen and obey. In that which suits us and that which doesn't. Meaning if the ruler tells you to do something which doesn't suit you, you're not happy with, you still have to obey them. At times of hardship and times of ease. And if the ruler behaves selfishly towards us and even if he is selfish even if he is selfish you still have to obey him so this hadith is very clear in affirming that the one who is selfish or the one who behaves in a way that is taking away the wealth of the Muslims or so on and so forth does not uh, is not to be rebelled against the sheikh was into a lot of detail after that uh, regarding some of the other ahadith that might be used and you can read those yourself um, as relates to the innovator uh, Al-Qadi Iyad Rahimahullah Ta'ala uh, who said this is narrated from him by Imam Al-Nawawi in, in Shar Sahih Muslim he said if it so happened that the ruler committed an act of disbelief and changing Islamic law or innovation he would have invalidated his right to rule and, ob and obedience to him would be nullified and it would be obligatory for the Muslims to stand up against him if they were able uh, to do so. So they use this as a, a quote for the validity of rebelling against the, against the innovator. However, the meaning of innovation in this quote of Al-Qadi Iyad is innovation which is disbelief. Because in the light of the hadith of Ubadah ibn al-Samid, except if you see open disbelief for which you have a proof from Allah. And the scholarly consensus which we have quoted. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala said in Fath al-Bari, the scholarly consensus which they allege regarding rebellion if the Khalifa calls to innovation is completely invalid unless it is taken to mean innovation which is open disbelief. I, unless the innovation reaches the level of open disbelief, then this statement that they make is Invalid. And that is the statement of Al-Qadi Iyad. Al-Qadi Iyad said, they commit an act of disbelief or an innovation, meaning act of an innovation which is an act of disbelief. As for the issue of oppression, the biggest argument they have is the action of Ibn al-Zubayr and Al-Hussein Ibn Ali radiallahu anhu. This is their, I mean, this is their, uh, 
their strong argument. They say, didn't Ibn al-Zubayr rebel against, didn't Ibn al-Zubayr rebel against an oppressive ruler? Didn't Al-Husayn ibn Ali, radiallahu anhum, didn't he also rebel against an oppressive ruler? Firstly, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam clearly said, unless you see open disbelief. That is the first point. Secondly, Ibn al-Zubayr and Al-Husayn radiallahu anhum were oppressed, were, uh, yani they were opposed by all of the companions. All of the companions opposed them. Just as some of the tabi'een rebuked those who went along with Ibn al-Ash'ath. From the proof of this is the hadith of Ibn Abbas in al-Bukhari and Muslim, in Bukhari 7053 and Muslim 7467. Whoever sees something from this ruler that he, did, that he dislikes, let him be patient. For whoever separates from the main body of the Muslims by a hand span and dies, dies a death of pre-Islamic times. And the hadith of Usaid ibn Hudayr, you will meet after me selfish people. So be patient until you meet me at the Hawt. As for the companion's opposition to Ibn al-Zubayr, Al-Imam al-Bukhari narrated in hadith number 7111. Sulaiman ibn Harb narrated to us that Hamad ibn Zayd narrated to us from Ayyub, from Nafi' who said, when the people of Medina broke their allegiance to Yazid, Ibn Umar gathered his servants and children and said, I heard the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say, every treacherous person will have a banner on the day of resurrection. And we have given a pledge of allegiance to this man upon the pledge of allegiance given to Allah and his Messenger. And I know of no treachery greater than giving the pledge of allegiance to a man upon the pledge of allegiance to Allah and his Messenger than fighting against him. And I know among none of you who has removed their loyalty to him except that there will be a split between him and me. This is the statement of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah. And Ibn al-Athir <coughs> said regarding the actions of Al-Husayn, the letters of the people of Kufa reached him while he was in Mecca and so he prepared to travel. A group of people forbade him from doing so including his brother Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah, ibn Umar, ibn Abbas and others. And all of them were opposed to the action of Al-Husayn. First of all, in the first place, you can't term the action of Al-Husayn to be rebellion in the first place. Because in the first place, Al-Husayn did not enter into a pledge of allegiance with Yazid in the first place. However, even if it were, it was opposed by the companions universally. And all of the companions opposed it. Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, the most notable and virtuous of the Muslims used to forbid rebellion and fighting during the time of tribulation. Like Abdullah ibn Umar and Sa'id ibn, uh, and Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib and Ali ibn al-Husayn and others. They forbade rebelling against Yazid in the battle of Al-Harra just as Al-Hasan al-Basri and Mujahid and others forbade joining Ibn al-Ash'ath in his rebellion. And he said, for this reason when Al-Husayn wanted to go to Iraq عن, when they sent many letters to him the greatest of the people in knowledge and religion like Ibn Umar and Ibn Abbas and Abu Bakr ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Harith ibn Hisham advised him not to go. And Al-Hafidh ibn Kathir narrates regarding the fighting against Yazid, Abdullah ibn Umar and a group of the people of the prophetic household did not break their pledge, nor did they give another pledge to anyone after Yazid. 
And he said about Al Hussein, when the people knew of his leaving, they were anxious about him because of it. And those of intellect among them and those who loved him advised him not to go to Iraq. And they commanded him to remain in Mecca and they reminded him of what happened to his father and brother at the hands of those people. Abdullah ibn Abbas said, Al Hussein ibn Ali radiallahu anhuma sought my advice about going to Iraq. And I said to him, if it were not that this would humble you and me, I would, I would have clung with my hand to your head. And, I, if, and if I knew that by us being stuck together, you would remain here, I would do so. And Abdullah ibn Abbas came to him and said, Oh my cousin, the people have spread unsettling news that you are traveling to Iraq and I see what you are doing. Al Hussein said to him, I have decided to travel in one of these next two days, inshallah. Ibn Abbas said, Tell me if they have called you after having killed their ruler and expelled their enemy and seized their lands, then go to them. If their ruler is alive and he is staying there in control of them and the people have overcome their lands, then they have only called you for tribulation and fighting. He said, oh my cousin, I cannot bear it, yet I have no choice. Indeed, I fear for you that this path will be your destruction. The people of Iraq are a treacherous people, so do not be deceived by them. Ibn Umar caught up with Al-Husayn while he was on the road to Iraq. Ibn Umar said, where are you heading to? Al-Husayn said, Iraq. Then he said, these are their letters and pledges of allegiance. Ibn Umar said, do not go to them. Al-Husayn refused. So Ibn Umar said, I will tell you a hadith. Jibreel came to the Prophet ﷺ and he gave him a choice between this world and the hereafter. He chose the hereafter and he did not want this world. You are a piece of the Messenger of Allah and none of you will ever rule it. Al Hussein still refused to go back. Ibn Umar embraced him crying, saying, I entrust you to Allah against being killed. And Sa'id ibn Mayna rahimahullah, said, that he heard Abdullah ibn Amr radiallahu an say, Al Hussein hastened that which was decreed for him. By Allah, if I had reached him, I would not have allowed him to go unless he overpowered me. And Abu Sa'id al Khudri radiallahu an, he came to Al Hussein and said, O oh Abu Abdullah, indeed I'm a sincere advisor to you and I'm concerned for your well being. News has reached me that a group of your supporters in Kufa have written to you, calling you to set out to them, do not go. For I heard your father say when he was in Kufa, by Allah, I am weary of them and I hate them. And they are weary of me and they hate me. And Abdullah ibn Muti' al-Adawi radiallahu an said, my mother and father and I be sacrificed for you. Allow us to take pleasure in your being here and do not travel to Iraq. For by Allah, if these people kill you, they will surely take us as slaves and servants. And Ibn Umar said to, to Ibn Zubair and to Al Hussein, I remind you both of Allah, will you not both return and not break up the united body of the Muslims? And the quotes continue. Abu Sa'id al Khudri said to him, to Ibn Zubair, Fear Allah, remain in your house and do not rebel against your ruler. And Abu Waqid al Laythi, Uh, عنه, he said, news reached me that Al-Husayn ibn Ali was setting out and I caught up with him at a place called Malal. I implored him in the name of Allah not to go. For indeed he set out in the wrong way. He only set out to cause his own death. He said to me, I will not go back. And Jabir ibn Abdullah said, 
I spoke to Al Hussein and said to him, Fear Allah and do not turn one group of people against another. For by Allah you will not be praised for what you have done, but he disobeyed me. And Al Miswar ibn Makhramah wrote to him saying, Beware of being fooled by the people of Iraq. And after hearing this from how many, maybe five to ten of the companions, imploring them not to do what they did. Bearing in mind that what they did was not rebellion in the first place, by the, not in the definition of the Khawarij. It was, not, it was not the rebellion of the Khawarij in any case. But the companions were unanimous against them doing what they did. And what they did was in opposition to the companions from the scholars of the companions like Ibn Umar and Ibn Abbas and Jabir Ibn Abdullah and those companions who came with them. More than that, Al-Hasan ibn Ali opposed the action of his brother before when he used to burn the letters of the people of Kufa and say, I fear that my brother will be put to trial by these letters. He used to burn the letters of the people of Kufa because he knew that the people were not promising something which was good and so on and so forth. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, for this reason, Ahl-Sunnah remained fixed upon abandoning fighting at the times of tribulation because of the authentic narrations from the Prophet ﷺ, such that they came to mention this in their books of creed, as well as commanding patience in the face of the tyrannical behavior of the rulers and abandoning fighting them, even though during times of tribulation, many people of knowledge and religion took up arms. And Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, when the scholars say about someone he held the opinion of the sword, they intend that the person held the opinion of permissibility of rebelling against tyrannical rulers with the sword. This was an opinion held by some during the early generations. However, the matter has been fixed and established in abandoning this due to the actions which lead to it which are worse and indeed in the events of Al-Harra and the rebellion of Ibn al-Ash'ath and others is a lesson for those who reflect. This is... I guess all we have uh, time for, uh, I need you guys to stay here because we have something very important to do next. But inshallah, this is all we have time for in this. What I would recommend that you do is I would recommend that you take the book and you read the book. We'll give you the PDF copy of the book to everybody, okay? It's very, very easy to read and it has a lot more references and quotes than I was able to fit into this short time. Uh, it deals with things like the issue of Riba, the issue of uh, major sins, the issue of stealing the wealth of the Muslims, the issue of allegiance to the disbelievers, all of it is contained within this book. And so inshallah you can find a good primer on this topic. Once again I would emphasize to you that if you want to be comfortable in these arguments, you need to go back to the classical scholars. Because ultimately the modern day scholars, will, you will struggle to win the argument with their statements because it's always easy for those people who debate with us to say they are just corrupt, they are telling you something. But it's very hard for them to accuse Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar and Al-Imam al-Nawawi and Al-Imam Ahmad and Al-Imam al-Shafi'i and all of them which we are quoting from in this book. It's very hard for them to accuse them of these statements. And these people are quoting the same thing. The book is not very long. It's only 90, 90 pages. So it's inshallah easy for you guys to, to go through and read. Uh, and uh, especially on the headings that I've given uh, on these topics. What we have to do now inshallah is we're going to do a little mini uh, mock exam. 
uh, just to spring this one on you guys, inshallah. So we're going to do a little mini mock exam. Now, those of you who will have maybe seen the email and the video that we sent out yesterday will know that we are going to have exams coming up. And uh, these exams are going to be taken uh, like electronically here. So while you're sitting here, you're going to take the exam using your mobile phone or using your tablet or laptop or something similar. So today is just a mock exam, okay? I know some people will not be able to do it today because they don't have something with them or maybe they were not prepared or whatever. You can do it up to the time of Jum'ah. You can even do it at home. But it's the main aim is to get you familiar with how the exam system will work. It's only five questions. How will the exam system work? And uh, for you to become uh, familiar also with the way that the, you know how to make the you know in terms of the technology how to get the website open and what you will have to do so we will tell you about exams in advance we will not spring exams on you we will tell you when you're going to have an exam however when you are going to have an exam you will need to bring something to take the exam on you will need to bring a mobile phone or you'll need to bring a tablet or you'll need to bring a laptop with an internet connection the exams are done online Mostly they are multiple choice, but the purpose for today is not really the, the marks will not count nothing today counts against your final result It's only just a, five simple questions to test whether or not you can make the you can work the system and to, to iron out any Any problems in the system before we give you a proper exam inshallah So what you need to do is you need to go to kalima.org forward slash Mock one. That's M O C K one. The number.